Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. Good morning. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird, and we are thrilled to be live streaming from Trinidad on Jolt Radio. Our podcast and radio show explore the world's cultural landscape, and we engage at the intersection of digital media, sound art, and social practice to spark conversations about contemporary art, film, and architecture. Here we are to bring you a conversation with local artists, designers, writers, and filmmakers about contemporary Caribbean cultural space. And with me in our pop-up studio, in the neighborhood of Woodbrook. I'm inviting in the conversation, Christopher Cozier. Hi. Sean Leonard. Morning, Kathy. Janine Mans-Franco. Hi, Kathy. Franco Philip. Hi, Kathy. And Kristen Chen. Hello, Kathy. So great to be here. We have invited you here in this beautiful room in one of the old homes in Trinidad you can hear some ambient sound from the street and the trees. We are on the third floor of a building that houses two architectural firms, and one of them belongs to Sean Leonard. I'm here for a residency in Alice Yard, an art and performance space just steps from here, and Sean Leonard has a family history related to that space. Tell us where Alice Yard came from. Alice Yard, which is located in Woodbrooks, it's the uh, home of my great-grandmother. We started occupation in, at that site in the 1960s, and it's now a contemporary art space. Uh, and it's co-managed by myself, uh, Christopher Cozier, and Nicholas Laughlin. And Sean is an architect. Christopher Cozier is an artist, and Nicholas Lachlan is a writer and editor. They are the masterminds behind this space, and they're going to be sharing how they run it and their network of collaborators. This month is an important month because in 2008, they launched their residency program. 2006, they launched the entire Alice Yard Sean is an architect who's practiced in Trinidad and Tobago since 1992. He's director of Coord Limited and Basso Leonard Architects Collaborative Limited. And he is taking me on an architecture tour. <laughs> Christopher has been taking me around on walkabouts in the city, and it's been super fun. This is what replaces it and stays there empty forever. And big Greek columns. So that's the original feel of the place. He's an artist and writer. He's participated in a number of exhibitions and written in a range of essays focused on contemporary art in the Caribbean and internationally. Thanks for joining us, Christopher. Yes, thanks for coming up with this idea, Kathy. Also with us is another creative contributor to Alice Yard, Kristen Chen. And Kristen is a freelance graphic designer who makes books and websites. He went to school at Parsons and at Tulane. I was studying him and noticed he's got a public health degree and an art degree. So he is involved in some really cool things, and we'll be hearing about those later, including a stilt walking project and a digital publishing and performance project. 
which you've seen on our post about Alice Yard because I love one image from one of your events and I keep posting it. So Kristen will be chiming in on his involvement soon. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Kathy. Franco Philip. Yes, tr do. Trinidadian <laughs> journalist and founder of Trini Good Media. Yep. Very Audio new. reporting from Trinidad and the Diaspora. Yes, we are. We are relatively new. We started, we're actually a website that does a podcast called Talk About Us. So, Franca, this is a big weekend for jazz fans. We have none other than the one and only Vonette Bigfoot in concert. It's me and my partner, Ardine Serju. Um, she's also a broadcaster, so we decided probably about a year and a half ago that we wanted to do podcasts. And so we said we'll do something that isn't available really. Um, we wanted to do a focus on society and culture in Trinidad and through diaspora, so that's what we're doing. It's been, what, eight, nine months now? So yeah, we've had, we put out like nine podcasts so far. So I think we're all right. I think we're going good so far. We want to up the um, tempo, but it's just the two of us, so... And you have other jobs. <laughs> I do, yeah. I do a, a column for Caribbean Beat Magazine. I'm actually a big foodie. So, yeah, I write the cook-up column. Yeah, and I do some freelance writing as well. So, yeah, I am quite busy. <laughs> well, at the end of the show, we'll give you a chance to each say where our listeners can find you. Yeah. Uh, and that's one. There are so many foodies in my life, including <laughs> me, that I'm looking forward to following that. You also were a former BBC producer. Yes, I lived in the UK for 14 years, lived in London for nine, and while I was there, I was at the BBC World Service, and so I worked at the BBC Caribbean Service, which was the arm for the Caribbean. It was really, really good. I worked with BBC TV as well, and I also did a lot of work with um, what they used to call factual and learning, which produces a lot of the natural history and all those kind of shows, but I had a great time there. And I came back to Trinidad in 2012, and I'm here now. Hopefully we'll have time to talk about why I come back. Yes. Well. I think it's really important. These people in the room with me are really important to the cultural life of this country, and I think it's awesome that you're here. Thank you. <laughs> Janine, we just met this morning for the first we time, do. contributes to Global Voices, which is one of the spaces of very great import in the Caribbean that promotes and uses citizen journalism to convey what's going on in the region and the world. You also are a filmmaker. I am. And your documentary on child labor in the Caribbean screened at the first Trinidad Film Festival. The first ever Trinidad and Tobago Film Festival, yeah. And I have some insider news just from studying the festival, which is another <laughs> reason I'm here that Janine has been selected as a finalist for special funding for one of her films called Silk Road. And I can't wait to hear about that. Yeah, it's exciting. The pictures on Sunday. I would love a chance to see the piece. Let's talk about where we are geographically, people. <laughs> We're in the Caribbean, or the Caribbean, depending on which part of the archipelago you come from. We are in the midst of hurricane season, I realized after I booked my flight. <laughs> uh, 
I think that it's really important to bring this up because another live broadcast I did earlier this year was from the Dominican Republic, and a lot of the people that I talked to when I was there were people very concerned whose lives had been devastated last year by hurricane activity in the region. I don't know what you feel about that in Trinidad as a concern. I know earthquakes are another concern here. We're very low so in terms of, you know, intertropical convergence zone dips. So very often the hurricanes, I'm not a weatherman, but growing up in the Caribbean, and they always seem to kind of dip near to us and go up, or they pass between us and Grenada. I would say earthquakes are sort of more scary to us. It's not that we have not been hit by you know, hurricanes in the past, but we don't really have the same kind of challenge that, say, Grenada, St. Vincent, Antigua, Barbados, because of where we're located, very far south. The earthquake story of Haiti is certainly something that everybody still has on their minds. And I came upon, when I was studying Janine, an essay she wrote about the August 18th earthquake in Trinidad. Tell us what that brought to mind. For me, one of the most poignant examples of what citizen media could do in the region happened back in 2010 when the earthquake hit Haiti. My son was three months old, and I just remember having him with me, being at my laptop, just trying to get all these stories out about Haiti. Global Voices covered the earthquake extensively. We had a team on the ground in Haiti after everything settled down to try and get Haitians to, to have the opportunity, because they didn't have internet, they didn't have equipment, to try and get their story told through their own voices and their own experiences. We wanted their perspectives. But what I realized was that Twitter, more than anything else, was the mechanism, was the platform by which people were communicating. And that was huge to me. It was immediate. Twitter was involved in, in the rescue of, of, of some people who had been trapped. They were using their mobile phones to communicate, which was sort of unprecedented, certainly in our region. So that made a really deep impact on me. I guess a specific example was that there was one guy who owned the hotel, one of the last standing hotels in Port-au-Prince. He was tweeting out a lot of information, and, and he asked this question one day. Of course, I was following him on Twitter. And apparently this company that I believe turned out to be Monsanto, was offering free seed to try and jumpstart the, the Haitian agriculture sector post-earthquake. And he asked, who are these people? This seems like a nice gesture. And through Twitter, people just started sending him links on, on the company and, and what GMO seeds were all about and so on and so on. And I think what he did was he mobilized the farmers in Haiti who then protested against their being let into the country by the government, and, and that was stopped. Something like that could have made a bad situation even worse. I really, really did see the power of citizen media through that whole Haiti experience. I remember you writing that traditional media couldn't even find a safe passage to report on it. Yeah, correct. Uh, so that's when the phenomenon you and your mind kicked in, and, and we saw it happen with Arab Spring later that year, yeah. and reporting in on the ongoing crisis in Syria, and then other people using their mobile devices to report crimes that they were seeing, and certainly the Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S. is an example, yes. where citizens felt empowered to report on what's going on. And I think that's an important aspect of what I do in the cultural space, 
is convey voices that people might not hear, like this conversation right now. <laughs> You'll hear it in your zone, but you won't necessarily hear it elsewhere. And I think that that's what's really important. And Global Voice is obviously an, a source that's pretty impressive. Before we jump deeper into this conversation of independent media, I think the role of Alice Yard as an independent culture space here has been quite significant. And I wondered, how did you decide to, to do this project? Where did it come from? Well, we didn't decide. Uh, we didn't decide at all. It goes back to an event in 2006 where a group of artists wanted to sort of do work more in the public domain rather than in the white box. One young artist, Jamie Deloy, was looking for small cavernous kind of space for a video installation. And Sean offered what is now the band room, which was a storeroom. Store store it was perfect for her objectives. And it became a venue. And I, I can remember when we were sitting in a room and saying, well, what would we call this place? Right? It was Nicholas and Georgia, a couple of us, and I think, I don't, I don't know who said Alice at first, but, well, Alice, it was Alice's, but you must have said that to them. And then, so then the first event was part of this larger project called Galvanize. I don't know, I'm confused. There's nothing to be confused about. Then, within a week or two, other people started saying, oh, can I do something? And then um, Sean was overwhelmed almost with requests for the space to do things. There was a band that needed a place to rehearse, 12. Nicholas called me, and you know, next thing I know, we were helping Sean organize events and activities in the space. I think it's important to mention, Chris, the, the notion of the yard in terms of its yeah. conceptualization and how that kind of environment in a Caribbean urban environment is critical to lots of negotiations, lots of creative activity, lots of fights <laughs> also, <laughs> uh, which is part of negotiation often. And so it seemed through Jamie's project that this was probably an opportunity to commence another kind of negotiation in the physical and ethical parameters of what a yard means in, in Port of Spain outside of what I would call, what was originally my biological family occupying the space, I thought maybe now what I'd call my creative family could now begin to start those kinds of negotiations. It's true, and I, and I think yards are part of the DNA of Port of Spain. I mean, there's so many initiatives, whether coming out of carnival, out of theater, out of dance, you know, popular music. Woodbrook is one of those kinds of communities where every backyard has a function. And I think also it was synonymous with the Internet was introduced into the Caribbean, at least into Trinidad in the late 90s. By 2006, when we came into being, it was spreading. You know, social media was really getting off the ground. Facebook came, what, a year after, around the same time. So it, there was both the actual family of people being in the yard and then the digital family, which is the region, people from around the region and the diaspora communicating with us. So a lot of designers and different people gravitated towards that space. In a typical yard sense, Alice Yard is open 24-7, it never closes, right? So sometimes there are things going on there that we didn't even know. 
and things start there that we find out about along the way, apart from the things that we program or organize ourselves. That's important, the notion of being open, therefore accessible, and open and free. And that's been fundamental to the way that we, we manage the speech. Speaking of design, yeah. we've got a designer here. How did you get involved with Alice Yard? I moved back to Trinidad in 2012, and I think my first foray with Alice Yard was an introduction through um, uh, Nicholas Lachlan. He was working on a project for uh, Bocas, and he invited me and a friend of mine Andre Bagu to do a performance in the yard and so I had not known about the yard before that that was my first introduction and I think it left an impression on me that first performance because it was the first time I collaborated with some very significant poets and writers up to this day I'm still doing work with those collaborators the project that started it off called Dwayne Islands was this kind of a milestone for me There was an introduction not only to the yard, but also to people. So that network started to open up. And I mean, I, I think all the projects that have happened have happened because of that project and through the um, collaborations through Sean, Nicholas, and Chris. And much of what they say as well, too, to the openness. I think the success of the projects, I mean, there's been about, I think, four major projects that I've done there. Build on the work that they've done, build on the values and principles that they've put into the yard, or the yard already existed with. So I think that culture is something that I stepped into, and that continues to guide the direction for the projects. And not everyone might know yet that there are two spaces related to Alice Yard. There's a second space, the Granderson Studio, in the Belmont neighborhood, and you have a reason for occupying that zone, Sean? What led you to get involved over there? I managed to procure a property there in Belmont, which I needed to find something to do with it. And so I thought that maybe it would be interesting to set up a sort of parallel conversation with the one that we were having in Alice Yard. Firstly, simply as an architect, the two environments spatially are completely different. Grandison Lab is for most part, completely covered and enclosed. And of course, Alice Yard is an open yard. So that began to set up some kind of sort of interesting dialogue. Additionally, it's much bigger, and it also occupies different ends of Port of Spain, both residential areas in Port of Spain, but across the famous Greenspark Savannah. So that's another interesting dialogue that could probably happen. I am new to Belmont, and so to a large extent, it's also an experiment, exploration for us to see through our occupation of that space, founded on supporting creative environments, what kinds of transformations happen either to the space or to the things that we do, just by virtue of its, this other location. And its position in the neighborhood, too, uh, how it will end up relating. What uh, kind of neighborhood is Belmont? Uh, well, as it happens, um, Kristen here occupies the space far more often than I do, <laughs> so he's probably better able to account for what happens and how things happen with respect to the activities in Grandison and the, the community. I mean, you, you indicated this this morning that you were at a birthday party on the pavement. Yeah, I mean, one of the brilliant things that Sean does is he sets up 
dynamics within a space. So like, there's a mechanic that still exists in front of Anderson Lab. He was working from the front of the building literally. He has like a broken down truck that he stores all his tools and but he can always find Junior um, in front of the building. And it was his birthday yesterday, so he um but the reason I know about this is because I mean he added me on Facebook. And I met him yesterday. And you, and you met him yesterday, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, and he's kind of a little local legend because, I mean, people are, I mean, a, a photograph went around, got a little bit viral of him. There is a community that was already existing there in Belmont. In Belmont, I mean, I found Grandison Lab through the Moku Jumbies. I think since 2015, they've been having their mass camp over there. <laughs> And so I, you know, through Alice Yard, stumbled into Grandison Lab, found all the Mokojumbis making their costumes, and just started asking questions and being curious as to what was going on in this place. I hadn't known Grandison Lab too, too well before that. I mean, and now I'm fully in Mocha Jumbi world. And Mocha Jumbi is the stilt dancing. Yeah, so it's one of the traditional mask characters that um, you'll see during carnival. It's uh, Moko means protector or god, and Jumbi means spirit. So it's one of the familiar characters that you will see every year in the carnival. And I had a very deep conversation with Kristen yesterday at Granderson Labs, so you'll hear that on a separate episode. What I find interesting about Granderson Lab is that, again, it's in Belmont, and Belmont is one of the most culturally sensitive places in Trinidad. It's the birth of so many things. Sailor bands, which are an important element of our carnival, come out from Belmont. There are so many steel bands that are part of Belmont. You know, there's so much of carnival, which is our cultural thing, that starts in Belmont. So I think it's interesting where you situated Alice Yard and Grandison Lab. It's at the heart of culture in both locations. My parents are from Barbados. When they came to Trinidad, they lived in Belmont. I was actually born and spent the early part of my life in Belmont and went to primary school there. It's a very street life, active, you know, it was a sort of a, what, a 10th century suburb as the city expanded. Mm-hmm. And then Woodbrook is like the 30s expansion west. In my mind, Belmont is like our kind of Harlem Renaissance. There's something like it. It's where you see those photographs of people in suits with their hair brushed down, you know, debating societies, piano, reading clubs, you know, sports clubs and so on. I mean, as we know, that's where the Trinidad Society of Independence met in the 30s. You know, that's CLR James, Mans, you know, people like that. It has many levels. Just around the corner, you know, is St. Margaret's Lane associated with the 1970s. You know, so it's rich. And I suppose Woodbrook has its own legacy as well. You know, Little Carib, the various panniers, uh, now the big black box, a modern version. <laughs> I suppose Alice Yard is trying to find it what we mean. And it's true because when, in the early stages of Alice Yard, I had a really weird encounter. One day I was in the yard puttering about and a man walked up the driveway and gave me a lecture. He said, well, young fellas, I like what you're doing inside of here. And I said, what, what, what? He said, well, he said, I was a little boy and I saw Paul Rubson singing from somebody's balcony. And he was referring wow. to the founding of the Little Carib. 
he said, a little fella, you know, he said, well, look, go ahead, man, do it, do it, you know. I said, do what? <laughs> so, you know, people are watching, people are thinking, and we sometimes have to catch up, you know. Well, I think that speaks to the inclusivity yeah. of this space, because yeah. Alice Yard, to me, has always been very all-encompassing. It's a space where people feel they can walk off the street and just come in and start to talk, you know, find out, oh, you know, what are you all doing here? And a lot of spaces in Trinidad are not like that, but... Alice Yard is, it's very welcoming, and I think that speaks to, I don't know, the generational thing with Sean's grandmother. You kind of feel like you're in your grandmother's yeah. house. It's very comfortable. That's where I'm staying, and I feel very much at home there, and I think it'd be great for our listeners to hear where you are coming from. Christopher just mentioned where his family comes from, where he studied. Let's just kind of give people an orientation oh. of our perspectives here. Okay, so yeah, I was born in Belmont, parents moved out to the suburbs in Diego Martin. When I was a kid, I went to John Donaldson, which was a technical and vocational institute that was founded in the 60s, um, study design. And then I developed an interest in wanting to be an artist. But I shouldn't say I developed an interest, because I was since I was very small, I worked. There was a national program for young people with artistic abilities, so I worked with a lot of the older guys, you know. And then I left, went away, I was in the US, I was at MICA doing an undergraduate, did graduate work at Rutgers, moved to New York, was in Greenpoint, had a studio, but then my first son was born in the US, and then I said, he have mango tree and aunties at home, and, uh, and this gentrification thing, politics don't work for me. <laughs> it was in the era of crack cocaine and craziness. So I grabbed my child and came back here, because this is what I know, it gave me my start my launching pad out into other things. I wanted to give my kids the same thing. Mango tree, backyard, and aunties. Awesome. <laughs> well, this, this is Sean, this is Sean, this is Sean. speaking. <laughs> I was born in England. My parents were studying in, in England at the time. I was born there. I went to school in Trinidad Tobago, primary school and secondary school, and uh, left to study architecture in London at the Architectural Association, the School of Architecture. Worked there for three years. Lost my job. Was made redundant in the early 90s, uh, a recession happening there. I came to Trinidad on my way to Zimbabwe because I then planned to go to explore Africa. So came here before I'd go to Africa to uh, work on a house for a friend, and I never left. I'm here now um, speaking <laughs> to you, Kathy. Uh, I've always been part of a, a family and an environment where construction and building and space is important. So that uh, coming here... There were lots of things I discovered that I did not know that I liked. I thought very interesting that people were doing outside of or without architects. I just felt that I needed the opportunity to, I don't know, sort of understand those things. And of course, while that's happening, I, I meet you know, wonderful people like Chris and, and, and Nicholas and others. Kristen Chen. Similar to Sean, actually, I was born in England. Uh, my dad was studying at the time, and he's a physician. I moved back when I was four to Trinidad and then spent my primary and secondary schooling here. During that time, I got really involved with gymnastics, so that was my kind of first passion. Um, and then I went away to um, college to compete um, for gymnastics and then was kind of continuing the path of my dad with public health. And then had this creative side of me as well that has been part of me, I think, from young. And there was like a moment where I was just trying to figure things out and decided to apply. This word graphic design was very new to me and that came very, very late. Went down that path, applied to one school, and if I didn't get in, then I would kind of close that dream. 
but I applied, got into um, Parsons, and then spent a few years over in New York. Um, and then after I finished studying with an associate's degree there, I went to work in publishing. So I worked over at Knopf and at Macmillan, and then came back to Trinidad. And that's where you've got your own practice. Awesome. How about you two? <laughs> over here, the writers and the journalists. <laughs> I was born in St. Clair, a little street called Cotton Hill, which is just of the Savannah. My, my family lived there for a long time. And when I was about nine, I moved east of Port of Spain to an area called Barataria, which is kind of in the earthy, down-to-earth, new development for public servants. My dad was a police officer. My mother was a public servant. And I grew up there. I went to Holy Name Prep and Holy Name Convent, which are allegedly prestige schools. <laughs> but I actually had a really diverse experience meeting so many people there. You know, one of the big things at Holy Name was art and writing, which I kind of took for granted, but I only discovered that I could do writing much later on. <laughs> and I became a journalist quite by accident, to be honest. Um, I was at university, studied literature, had no idea what I was going to do after. And one of the local newspapers had a management trainee scheme for young writers or people they wanted to put into the newsroom. I went and I never left. I never left journalism. I don't think that I could do anything other than journalism or that I want to do anything other than journalism. I think it's one of the best careers in the whole wide world. It's taken me a lot of places. I mean, when I went to England, I worked at a little local newspaper called the Brighton Argus, and I learned a lot about British culture from there, the way how people regarded the countryside, the way people took a pride in their, their local football team. I'm also a huge sports fan. So that was really important. And then going to the BBC, which is one of the best media corporations in the world, you know, you realize that creativity can cross so many platforms. And at that point, I went in as an online producer. So the world of online was opening up and the BBC had a, a role to develop it in the UK. And I was able to see how all the platforms work, all the legacy media, so from radio, which is my favorite medium, radio, online, television, and I saw how, how the national broadcaster of a country could really influence and uplift the country. I came back to Trinidad quite by accident. My mother was ill, and I'd always said if anything happened to any of my parents, I'd drop what I was doing and come back, and I did. Uh, my mother passed away in 2012, and I had to take care of my dad, who passed away in 2014. Mm -hmm. I'm an orphan, but hey, I'm in Trinidad, and as Chris said, there's mango trees, there's sun, there's family, there's support, there's something that home is home, as we say here. So now I'm just trying to build up a media practice for myself, and hopefully to influence a lot of young and interested journalists and people who want to do independent stuff. And that's, that's what I hope we're doing in the future. How about you, Janine? Well, I was born in Port of Spain. Went to St. Joseph's Convent, which is sort of yeah, sister school, yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, to where Franco went. I just always remember myself writing. My parents would say, if I had to apologize for anything, I couldn't like walk up to the person and say it. I had to write it down. <laughs> <laughs> in school, I did languages, but I think I was always interested in communications. And interestingly, I was, I was supposed to go to Jamaica to do the mass communications program at UWE there. That was 1988, and then mm. Hurricane Gilbert hit. And it was a really bad storm in Jamaica. Struggled to come back. I mean, it happened right at the beginning of September when the semester was supposed to start. And I said, well, do I really want to start my university career? 
like this. So I, I delayed and I ended up going to Ryerson in Toronto where I did radio and television arts. But I don't think it was ever a question of me staying up there for very long. My family was down here. My parents had just recently got divorced. I felt my father was here and I needed to come back. So I did. And for many years, sort of, I freelanced or worked in advertising, which I think was against my grain. I think people in advertising agencies are creative despite, not because of. <laughs> not that it doesn't have its role. It absolutely does. But it, it taught me to think outside of the box. And yeah, and then, you know, I was very interested, very involved in, in trying to get the whole film industry here off its feet again. Because back in the 80s, we had a vibrant film and local television industry. I mean, there were, you know, programs being made. There was Banyan, there was Earth TV. There was a show that came on every week called Gael. It was like a community sort of roundup of all things Trini. And people used to love to look at that show. And there were soap operas. There was Sugarcane Arrows. In a changing world. Everything can seem so unreal. Life can be so cold, even though the fire's burning. And then all of a sudden, you know, things just went flat because it was easier to buy foreign programs than it was to produce local ones. So I was really interested to try and get the film industry sort of producing again. I think we really have come a long way. The Trinidad Tobago Film Company, a lot of people sort of put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into it. Bruce Paddington, Christopher Laird, they were both involved in, in Banyan back in the day. Carl Fodringham headed the early days of the film company. And I think we've really come quite a long way. I became director and a producer, and, and, but I always came back to my writing. Because I just, like Franca, like journalism, I mean, I think we're just genuinely interested in people and stories, and yeah. that's, what, that's what drives us. I think that's what connects us. And that's what social media does. I mean, there's, there's this narrative that social media distances people and pushes them away and doesn't make them connected. And it can, can have that effect, but it can also have the effect of bringing communities together and bridging those gaps. And that's what Google Voices really is all about. Let's talk about when independent media started playing a serious role in the Caribbean. Was there a turning point? Let's speak for Trinidad. Jeanine had mentioned when I was talking to her about when the independent newspaper came. But before that, even back in the late 60s, newspapers, the kind of tabloids, like the bomb, yes. <laughs> the challenge, mm -hmm. and all these kinds of strange papers were attempts to have a kind of indigenous, non-aligned, because the two, the dominant media, there was like maybe one big newspaper, you could say that was controlled by the business class and other social orders in the society. But Trinidad's media culture has been opening up. And when the broadcast licensing stuff had changed in the, was the 80s into the 90s, we went from having, what, four radio stations and maybe two or three newspapers to like 30 radio, 40 radio stations, you know, so like, and four TV stations and then cable. But I think in our specific conversation, and I'll throw it back to those guys, I think it has a lot to do with social media and the internet. Because I think, you know, blogging, and all of that kind of thing really changed our social landscape. I mean, there were even situations where blogs and Facebook and all kinds of weird things were even scooping conventional media, you know, around issues. A lot of it did have to do with the introduction of social media and the rise of the Internet. I'm wondering, I mean, I don't know what you think, Franca, but um, in 1990, there was an attempted coup in Trinidad and Tobago. You should be aware that a state of emergency has been declared. 
and a dusk to dawn curfew is enforced throughout the country. A 22-hour curfew is enforced in the area surrounding Trinidad and Tobago Television House. And a 24-hour curfew is enforced in the area around the Red House. I am appealing to you to remain calm and to strictly observe the curfew regulations. The government is actively engaged in discussions with members of the Jamaat al-Muslimin on the question of the safe release of hostages in the Red House and at Television House. At the television station at the time, Trinidad and Tobago Television, or TTT, had an OB unit out covering a football match. The, the folks who tried to take over the country actually were in Parliament and the TV station. So therefore, the OB unit was able to shut down the feed from the television station. And our news was coming from the OB unit and then this one radio station that managed to stay open. Yes. And I think, although that was still traditional media in the sense, I think people understood the power of media, just even in general, mm-hmm. to give you information in a crisis. And I think after that, there was even our traditional media landscape, because this was before the dawn of, of social media, became more vibrant, more egalitarian. People were more involved. I think it inspired people to... Media wasn't just this thing that was provided to us anymore. It was, it was something that we got involved in, and made our voices heard. So in a sense, maybe in the Trinidad context, I, yeah, I could be off base. This is just a theory. It was a precursor to how we engage now with social media. I think you're right. I think, um, particularly as Chris mentioned as well, with the broadcast licenses being freed up, you found that people started to buy up these licenses. You had all kinds of stations. You had all kinds of views. Now, the quality of what went on those stations (laughs) was quite questionable, but there were people who were determined to do total local, for example, like Iowa George or Calypsonia, and he said he would do a total local music station. 628-8184-672-3303. It's total local and it's very heavily invested in, you know, by the diaspora. People want to hear themselves, people want to see themselves. And the thing is, as as who was it mentioned? You Chris mentioned that, yeah. There are newspapers in Trinidad that are owned by conglomerates that have huge interests. Business class, I used to work at one, so I know, <laughs> <laughs> I know what that means to a lot of people. A lot of people some don't trust the view of some of those papers. And now with social media, you have so many people, like, for example, Rhoda Barroth, yep. who is, a, I would say, a political commentator, and she's been able to influence in a lot of ways the discussions happening around politics. You have people in various sectors. So you have somebody like Nigel Campbell, who is a music critic. And he's gone on to do a podcast with Laura Dorridge Phillips, who is one of our best entertainment journalists. Welcome to Music Matters, the Caribbean edition. The podcast series featuring news, interviews, and analysis of all the music from the islands. So you find that social media has given rise to people who are interested and educated about certain areas, have given them a niche 
And I think that, yeah, that, that's how we're going to be going. I see mm. more of that happening in the future as opposed to less. What is also interesting, like when I experimented in that in the early 90s, I was producing a kind of campaign for The Guardian. Mm -hmm. And I decided I wouldn't shoot in Port of Spain at all. I shot in different parts of the country. And when I brought back the footage, people were asking me, well, will you shoot this in Grenada? This is with Earth TV, because people yeah. had not seen Brongba and Maxis on TV, because most of the media companies and so on are in the city. So they just go out on the savannah, so you're only going to see yellow and red if you're lucky. Red mm -hmm. if you're lucky, mostly yellow. Like, nobody had seen anybody walking in Palmy's Park or in some part of... You know, there's a real strange way... Always maracas. You know, it's, it's a very northern, northwestern kind of media culture. I'm a kind of social media where do I go online and look at things just out of curiosity and there's all kinds of guys talking to you from I don't know where, you know. And But it gives me a window into the society that just didn't exist before. What you're saying for me is that social media is a culture space that can be a conduit for some really important ideas. I like the ease of setting up a podcast. You just launched yours eight months ago. I would love to see more of a podcast constellation mm -hmm. in Trinidad and the region. I think it would be super exciting, especially for people like the emerging voices yeah. that have the potential to introduce some new experimental forms mm -hmm. to podcasting. How do you think that the locally produced and independent media can diversify and amplify the content that they're sharing. How do you think it could be more interesting for you as listeners on this side of the table and more interesting for you as content producers? As Franca said earlier today, that I think individuals want to express themselves. And I think there's a lot of skills that are coming with the newer generations that are very fluent in social media, very fluent in these new tools. And tools are going to keep on changing. I think there already is that happening where you do see young voices kind of expressing themselves in very powerful, bold ways. And I think having um, that channel, that platform, or more platforms where that can be heard or can be seen. I mean, I'm a Facebook user. I love Facebook. Um, I don't think I can use, not use it in Trinidad. Um, I think it's been a big part of how I've been able to kind of scale small projects to be in community projects. But I, I do know the tools are going to change. There is a generation that does not sign into Facebook. Twitter, for some, for some not. Snapchat is already, I think, kind of on its way out. Tumblr was once a thing. And I mean, it's nice that Al Ziad has Blogspot, but I don't think anyone is signing in. I mean, it's an archive for more than anything else. There is a brilliant archive um, in Blogspot. But yeah, the tools are going to change. And I mean, Facebook is changing, and people are making things up as they go along. Yeah. And I think you know, that adaptability to um, what works best for you and then trying to I mean, respond to the space that you're in is important. Daniel Miller's book on the internet is a really fascinating case study because it talks about Trinidad and internet usage. It's an amazing book in terms of how it, how it refers to Trinidad's interest in internet use and how their people had websites before they even had computers. You know? So that's an interesting thing. And why I mentioned the book is it kind of inverts how people traditionally saw social media in the beginning. They talked about access and class and economy and so on. But actually in the Caribbean and in Trinidad in particular, it's been quite the opposite. 
because I remember in the beginning, people were using Facebook and so on, looking at disparagingly in terms of, oh, well, this internet is creating a distortion and it's creating... But no, I mean, as you said, Facebook was like the art forum of the, of the Caribbean art world. It was one of the few platforms where you could sit in front of your computer and know what somebody's doing in Jamaica, in Panama, in Caracas, in instant, you know, that morning. Well, in not two recent years ago, it would be two years before the catalog comes. And then, of course, some of the other designers that were associated with the yard in the early stages, the Draconian Switch by Richard Rollins and those guys, became like a kind of magazine, a digital thing that you could download on different shows, different issues, what artists and designers were thinking. And there are a couple others that I can't think of them, Designer Island. Mm -hmm. These were all people that orbited the yard in the early days. And one thing I would add to that as well, too, with the internet, I mean, I was reading an interesting post today about the development of the internet, how it went from being private spaces to being this very public space with websites and blogs to being a very, now kind of coming back to a bit more semi-private space, semi-public space. Mm -hmm. So where, you know, Facebook within networks, you know, or same thing with publishing as well, too, when you make the, the connections where there are these kind of experts and these people full of knowledge that are finding each other and then working together to collaborate and provide you know, more quality content. And I think it's something very architectural actually very, as well too, where at the heart of individuals is this desire to be private but also be connected to a community. And so finding the tools, I think, to be able to connect but then also have the privacy in which to be able to think and to process and to produce good content, I think will always kind of be the, the long-term um, goal. I mean, this is not my domain, but I keep hearing you guys and I keep thinking that traditional Calypso and, and Kaisers, I know it in some strange way, actually acts like social media. Mm -hmm. And I don't know whether aesthetically, whether there is a way in which a study of that can begin to kind of nuance the way that content is produced, like references that. I don't know how that happens, whether it's through education training reference, but it's interesting if a kind of study on that and how it connected with the space that we're in, the way mm -hmm. that that evolved, happened, and even was articulated, whether there's something... That's a really interesting story. I don't know if it occurred Very to you, true. Franca, but of course, one of our greatest Calypsonians, in my estimation, is David Rudder, yeah, who yeah. now lives in Canada. You got a hole in your soul. You got a beast in your peace. There is a man with a song. The international chantwell. He can sing you a praise, yeah. He can sing you the blues. He can tell you a tale. The international chantwell. So call him the Griot, the storyteller, the sweet Calypsonian. And he is extremely active, active on, on yeah. social media. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's how he uses, I mean, it may be just one or two liners, and he can just, in a few words, just completely get a grasp on a situation. And then the response that he gets on social media is just quite astounding. And a lot of the time how he poses these, these statements or asks these questions is in a very lyrical kind of way. And it does get a lot of attention. So that's a really interesting approach to, yeah. to solving that. Yeah, that, that's really interesting, Sean. I think um, I've really heard references to old-time Calypso being the social media of mm -hmm. long ago. 
And now, conversely, you hear people talking about the fact that social media has eclipsed what Calypso could be. So the challenge to our artists is like how Rudder has done it. Rudder puts a picture up yesterday, for example, of the, of, of the cricket, r- rubbish yes. leftover after our rubbish. Oh, yes. After the cricket match, final. Cricket match, that yeah. went viral. Yeah. You know, people talked about it on different websites and on the news and everything. But now it challenges our artists to say, well, how do I become relevant? How do I stay relevant? given all of this happening in the social media space. Because now I can't come and sing about a political situation that happened six months ago because everybody's talked about it on social media. I think it is a challenge to our artists to see how do you remain relevant and how do you use social media to actually enhance and add value to the the cultural space. On that note too, this is a few years ago, Mm -hmm. I I wrote a a column for Caribbean Beats on um, an article on memes and memes in the Caribbean space. Mm. And one of the people I interviewed for that uh, article was Rhoda Barra. Right. And she, she's a lecturer <laughs> as well, right? And she said that the whole meme thing, of course, it, it's, it's our culture to sort of make fun and give fatigue, as we call it. But she said it mimicked the kind of call and response of Calypso and the Kalinda mm-hmm. and all of that. And she's right, that is a way of communicating. And it does a really good job in, in terms of the meme. But social media as a whole does kind of mimic that it is a call and response. Somebody posts something, somebody responds. Somebody jumps in, and it's, it's, it's almost like a Greek chorus on the side and then this conversation going on I in another. Really, yeah, it's, I mean, one of my favorite is when sometimes they, they make music out of it, you know? Yeah. Like, what's the, the, the very, very famous one years ago was the one with Dominic Calipasan, you know, when he says... Um, um, don't be rude. Don't be rude. <laughs> don't be rude. <laughs> Within five, ten minutes, you know, a politician in, imposed himself on a journalist on a live broadcast. And, you know, and the journalist looked at him and said, don't be rude, you know, because he started to get out of hand. And with him, uh, by the late in the evening, there were mixes that were circulating with beats. It became a beat. Don't be rude. Don't be rude. And that is happening all the time. Don't be rude. 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 It does happen very quickly. Yes, it's like repartee. It happens really fast. fast, fast. Well, I love what we've come up with here. Mm -hmm. Some ideas, some other ways of engaging, and Mm -hmm. I want to put in a plug for more podcasting and encourage you and sharing content and cross-promoting each other, you know, just really making it a, a goal to see how far all this can go. It's pretty exciting. What do you think? It is. Mm-hmm. I, I keep on going back to mocha jumbies all the time. And every time I talk to anybody, <laughs> it's always <laughs> back to mocha jumbies. I mean, for Facebook, for us, I think there is something very powerful in seeing likeness, seeing pictures of, I think, and the big, I think, role of what we're doing at Alice Yard is this thing about participation, having people have access to an art form that I think traditionally we haven't but then also being in connection to, to the larger community and bringing them in as well to have that conversation. So social media and being able to have access to tools that allow you to present yourself, representation, starts to blur the lines, starts to break down boundaries, which um, I think shift the culture into a new direction. To make Trinidad and the Caribbean the center of the signals about culture in the world. I am really thrilled that you joined me today on Fresh Art International. We're live streaming on Jolt Radio, which is a station based in Miami, but obviously 
broadcasting out in the world, and I'm their biggest ambassador <laughs> right now, taking Fresh Art International to many locations for remote broadcasts this year. We brought you an awesome conversation in independent media in Trinidad and Tobago. Thank you for joining me in the studio today, Christopher Cozier, Sean Leonard, Janine Menz Franco, Franco Philip, and Kristen Chen. I really appreciate you being here. Let's tell our listeners how they can find you. So just yeah, Instagram, 1000mocos, and you can um, see what we're up to. Well, we hit our 1,000 fan mark today. Yay! Okay, Sean. Yes. Oh, no. well, Sean or Chris, together. Well, both of us, Alice Yard. Um, you know, the, the blog site is there. Yeah, Alice Instagram Yard Insta. Uh, so you can find uh, things that we're posting this week for sure. Uh, globalvoices.org. Yeah. And trinigoodmedia.com. Super. Fresh Art International is a radio show and a podcast, so this will become a podcast episode. We bring you live streaming programs every Wednesday morning from 10 to 11 Eastern Time. And today, after we sign off, I want to let you know that I'll be dashing across to a radio station, 95.5 FM, to introduce Fresh Art International on Ardeen Sirju's Wednesday morning art and culture show. You can listen to Fresh Art International anytime. Go to freshartinternational.com to explore more than 200 episodes in our archive. I've been doing this since 2011. So if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us anywhere you go for podcasts. With the support of followers like you, we have been sharing these conversations with great joy and passion. And we invite you to contribute to our effort by visiting freshartinternational.com and clicking on the red support button to give what you can. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk.